welcome to another MLEX podcast. I'm Anna Rago, Managing Editor for MLEX's London Bureau. Today we'll be exploring one of my favourite topics, how banks, insurers and other companies operating in the City of London are preparing for Brexit as the date of withdrawal in March 2019 approaches. In recent weeks, we've seen several UK banks, funds and insurers unveil plans to relocate part of their businesses to another EU country. But it's not just the companies that have been working hard. Policymakers and regulators in several EU countries have started to spell out what it would take to get the green light to operate in their countries. And the EU has drawn a red line. It wants to avoid a surge in shell companies after Brexit. With me is Hugo Coelho, MLEX's financial services correspondent in London. Hi, Hugo. Hi, Anna. There seems to be more to this debate on relocation than meets the eye. Clearly, it's, it's not as simple as picking a country and renting an office space. So far, we haven't seen a mass exodus from London. Will we finally start to see banks move to the continent? You may remember that at the end of last year, uh, the UK's top banking lobbyists said that the hands of bankers were hovering over the relocate button. He was suggesting that uh, a mass exodus from London was, was looming. I think change has been much more gradual than that. Most big banks have picked up the location for their new European hubs, but they haven't really moved operations yet. So moving is complex and there's much uncertainty around Brexit. I think companies are planning for the worst, but keeping changes at a minimum and delaying them for as long as possible. But pressure is increasing, obviously. EU regulators have already warned banks against dragging their feet. It's clear that financial companies will have to accelerate their preparations. It will be important to see how Brexit negotiations unfold until the end of the year, especially if there is any clarity on transitional measures. I think from banks' perspective, a transitional period would delay the effects of Brexit and give them more time to adjust. And there's also a big question about legacy contracts. Uh, these, are, these are contracts that were signed before Brexit but will mature after 2019. I think transferring all those contracts to a new European unit would be very time-consuming and costly, especially for insurers. And the BOE, the Bank of England, has already acknowledged that. So, so what, if, what will happen to, to, to banks and insurers if they don't move their operations by this March 2019 deadline? Well, as things stand, banks, funds, insurers, based in the UK, they can trade and sell services across the EU without the need for a local license. And they do that because they, they have EU passports. If the UK leaves this single market, as the government intends to do, it's, it's likely that they will lose these passports. So to continue serving clients in Europe, they will have to split the business and set up shop in the EU. Without that, well, they will basically be shut out of European markets. So the talks on market access are incredibly important and they haven't started yet formally. Um, and yet EU regulators have started to issue guidance on, on what companies have to do to move to, to the continent. Um, what are they trying to do with this preemptive strike? Is it a preemptive strike? Well, they fear that city banks will try to get away with letterbox entities. That's the problem. Companies would have an office in the EU but in practice, they would continue to run their operations from London and pull their resources there. And this concern is widespread. We've seen European authorities tasked with overseeing banks, funds, insurers. They've, they've been all talking about it. But uh, I think people tend to overlook the differences in guidance for each of these sectors. 
So, so what you're saying is that uh, banks will be treated differently than insurers. Um, if this is the case, what will banks have to do to make sure that they access the EU market? So let me take a step back and um, talk a bit about uh, supervisory uh, architectures. The European Central Bank has the power to authorize the Eurozone banks and it directly supervises the largest among them. It's, it's hands-on, if you want. Unsurprisingly, the, the European Central Bank has also been very detailed in its demands and in defining how much substance banks will, will, will need to have in their future European unions. So it offered detailed guidance on the admissibility of back-to-back -back booking models, for instance. It also clarified that banks would be allowed to use their UK capital models to calculate bespoke capital requirements for a limited period. These are not broad principles. These are very detailed prescriptions. And what about fund managers and insurers? What are they looking at? Well, national authorities are the ones in charge of the supervision of funds and insurers. EU authorities, they, they have the difficult task of bringing them into line. And there is a risk, and this is less acute on the banking side because of what I've explained about the ECB, there is a risk that national supervisors in different member states will undercut each other and lower standards as, as they compete to attract the companies that are moving from London. So both the European Securities and Markets Authority and the European Insurance Authority have published opinion papers that set out what they expect national authorities to do. But, but these are not binding. That, that is a problem. So there is a raft of guidance out there. From your experience, what do you think companies should be looking at in particular in these documents? There are several things. As I said, they're addressed to national supervisors, but companies have a lot to learn from them. Having said that, the papers are different because funds and insurers are also very different. The, the papers from the European Securities and Markets Authority, there are four in total, they put a lot of emphasis on delegation and outsourcing arrangements. So regulators are trying to avoid that key functions of funds, like deciding what investments to make and how to manage the risks, are carried outside of the EU. I think one of the most interesting elements in the paper by the insurance authority is the quantitative restrictions that they're putting in place on reinsurance. So this is about the ability that an insurer has to offload its risks by buying insurance for itself. Uh, they're setting the limits and that they are doing that because they hope to ensure that companies keep some capital in the EU27. But this will be a burden for specialist insurers like Lloyd's if national authorities follow. So th there's, there's one point that, that you picked up on, on one of your pieces and that the, the debate so far has focused mostly what, on what UK banks have to do to get access to the EU market. But what about EU banks that want to continue operating in London? Um, what does the scenario look like for them after Brexit? There are about 8,000 European companies, banks, insurers, funds, that are using passports to sell services and trade in London. This compares with 5,500 UK companies that passport into Europe. It's a big number. The Bank of England has asked some of these companies to put together contingency plans for a hard Brexit. Paradoxically, it didn't tell them what it wants them to do to let them go on doing business in London. This is because the central bank is in a bind. Any move it makes could undermine negotiations between the UK government and the Commission, 
and fragment financial markets, and this would be to the detriment of London. And would it be useful for companies to look at how companies from non-EU countries are currently treated in the UK? Would that offer some kind of blueprint for what lies ahead? The Bank of England has issued guidance for foreign banks a few years ago. Uh, in very general terms, it requires foreign banks that are too important for the local economy and uh, banks that provide retail services uh, to set up a separate legal entity in the UK, which basically means to hold capital and liquidity locally. As for the others, they can operate through branches. In the letter, where it asks European banks and insurers to submit their contingency plans, the, the, the central bank also told these companies to read that whole paper. But the Bank of England is expected to update its guidance in the autumn. Eventually, they will have to do it. And uh, this will be particularly useful for insurers and car financing companies and other lenders that do not fit the bill of traditional bank and are in the dark about all this. And this is a very MLEX question. Is there a risk that by the end of this process, the UK and the EU would take different approaches? And, and what do, would that mean for companies? Well, that's, that's a real possibility. Um, the activities that European banks and insurers undertake in London are different than the activities that UK-based banks do in Europe. London is a global financial centre that gives access to a deep pool of capital. In Europe, there is a bigger focus on local and even retail markets, so different activities can justify different responses from supervisors. I think there is a more subtle but also important point to be made here, and this is not the regulators doing. UK-based banks may be allowed to operate in Europe through branches after Brexit. But branches, unlike subsidiaries, do not get passports. So if a company wants to cover the whole continent, it will need authorization to set a separate branch in each of the EU27 countries. This is burdensome and it's best for them to just set up a subsidiary. In contrast, an EU bank or insurer may access the whole of the UK through a single branch. So what I'm trying to say is that European companies are in fact likely to face a less burdensome regulatory environment to operate in the UK than UK-based companies seeking to sell services in the EU. And it's not difficult to see that this could be politically sensitive and could become a salient issue in the negotiations going forward. Hugo, thank you very much for talking us through this. For our listeners, you can read more about the impact of Brexit on banks and other financial companies through the links to Hugo's story listed below. That's all from us in London for today. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you soon for another MLEX podcast.